So we've been going through a series as a church that we've been calling Resident Aliens. And we've been looking at what it looks like to live in a society where Christians and Christian beliefs are becoming or have become the minority. Where decades and generations of Christians in America lived in a society that was fairly comfortable to live in. The spoken values and the mores of the society largely matched the Christian faith. But in the last decade and and decades, the uh, change towards a secular humanistic worldview has become much more clear. And so we've been looking at what it looks like to live as a faithful Christian uh, in this kind of cultural milieu. Charles Taylor, he's a... uh, He's a scholar and a philosopher who's written extensively on trying to understand the cultural shifts that have taken place around us. And Taylor, he argues that the understanding and values people have moved from a sense of authority. This is the main thing. They've moved from a sense of authority where people look to pastors or parents or employers or other leaders for the vision of the good life, for a vision of what life is actually about. And that has shifted and they've become totally disinterested in any sense of authority, and instead have found their meaning in life within themselves. The major shift, the major shift in culture has gone to away from this sense of authority towards a sense of radical individualism, what Taylor even calls excessive individualism. And here's a quote from Charles Taylor. He says, I mean the understanding of life, which emerges with the romantic expressivism, of late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own, as against surrendering to conformity with the model imposed on us outside by society, or by the previous generation, or by a religious or political authority. So historically, We had a vision of the good life, you know, what what human flourishing is all about. That's what I mean by good life. What it means to be uh, a fully human, where, where humans find their fullest expression. That was given to us from outside. It was a vision of flourishing that society largely on the whole agreed upon. But what has happened by and large is that the vision of the good life has instead been shifted to be found inside the individual. And therefore, it is the right and even duty of every individual to find happiness and meaning by doing what feels and seems right to them. And any hindrance to that, particularly from any kind of authority, whether it's pastors or parents or policymakers, is seen as bigoted and intolerant. It's the culture we live in. So, many want to find themselves on the right side of history... So they get out of the way, as it were, of this new cultural machine and they capitulate. This at least is part of the reason I would suggest that you can explain the massive cultural shifts that we've seen from liberal pastors or political policymakers in such short order. To stand in the way of someone doing what they feel is right is seen as intolerant. So it's no wonder that 2,000 years of Christian orthodox views of marriage and gender are now jettisoned by some denominations in just the last 20 years. Or it's no wonder how high-level politicians can so radically change their view of human sexuality in the matter of one or two uh, election cycles. The church 
and state are common foes in the battle to express oneself at all costs. Religion imposes order by appealing to a divine authority. Christianity even goes so as far as to call as self-mortification, the dying to oneself and living to God that puts the demands of others first, even over our own desires. So, how then ought we live as Christians in the 21st century, 2016, Portland-Vancouver metro area? Because we believe that there is a sovereign God who reigns in the heavens. We also believe that there's a God who's broken into human history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We believe that God has the absolute authority and right over everything because he created it. It belongs to him. We believe that this sovereign God is found in the grace of Jesus Christ. This grace which saves us is totally, absolutely, freely given to us. It's all of grace, and there's nothing that we have done, nothing we will do, nothing we can do that merits or warrants this kind of favor from God. And if we can't and don't contribute anything to earn his love and favor and grace towards us, we don't do anything to contribute to his saving power and grace in our lives, then there is nothing that he cannot ask of us. So what does this have to do with Daniel chapter 7 and resident aliens? I don't know. I wrote this earlier in the week before I started my sermon prep. It's <laughs> half true. This is the paragraph where I tried to tie it all together, though. Because God has called us to neither assimilate or separate from culture, we must not assimilate and at the same time, we must not separate into the culture that we find, our, find ourselves in. And this really is, as we've been studying for the past six weeks, this really is a nice edge pursuit. To not assimilate with a culture, and yet to not separate from it, is a challenge indeed. It means that we are residents here. We don't separate ourselves. We don't set up enclaves that are, you know, sort of camps outside the city or, 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 or Christian, you know, communities and, and so on. We, we live among the peoples of the earth. And yet we're aliens, sojourners, strangers, exiles. We don't assimilate. We retain our cultural distinctiveness among the people of the Portland-Vancouver metro area. So how do we live in this culture that embraces excessive individualism? The Bible teaches that the good life is found in laying your life down for the sake of others. That the true expression of human flourishing comes from self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Daniel and the book of Daniel might be the best place in the entire Bible to learn what it looks like to retain one's religious distinctiveness while living in a pagan culture, and all the while seeking the good of the society that one lives in. Because that's the call upon us. That's the call that God gave to, Jeremiah, that, uh, to the people of Israel through his prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 1 to 4. He says, live among them, retain your distinctiveness, and seek the welfare and the good of the city. And Daniel 
and his friends have been a wonderful case study as we've looked at that. They have not pulled back. They've retained their religious distinctiveness to the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and they've become a great blessing to the kings that they served to the point where they were elevated again and again and again to places of honor and influence. So today, we actually finish our time in the book of Daniel. We aren't quite finished with the Resident Aliens series yet, but it seems best to take this theme and move it to another place in the scriptures, namely 1 Peter. So for the sake of time, today will be the last sermon in Daniel for now, and next week we will start a series of four expositions in the book of 1 Peter. So today, Daniel chapter 7, we come to a place that we can call the prophetic genre. Up to this point, chapters 1 to 6 have largely been narrative with some dreams and visions thrown in. But chapter 7 is uh, markedly different. Chapter 7 is a chapter that is largely prophecy. And in prophecy, there are symbols and figures that represent other things. So we're going to spend some time at the beginning sort of identifying what these different symbols are and and what uh, it seems that they point to. So we're going to read the text here. We're going to read it a little differently than we have in weeks past. I'm actually just going to read the first couple uh, uh, verses here, and then I'm going to teach them, and I'm going to read some more, and then teach it and read some more and teach it. We'll see how that goes. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. Actually, let's just read verses 1 to 3. This could get hairy. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we look at this text, God. We pray that you would make us to be a faithful people, Lord. For the whole point, as it seems you've showed to us, of the book of Daniel is to give us hope and to call us to be faithful. Lord, so we long for that this morning. We long to have hope, God, from your word. And we long that you'd make us a people who are faithful in this generation. God, I ask that you'd help me as I communicate your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember, as you think about the book of Daniel, chapters 2 through 7, the whole chapters 1 and uh, 8 through the end are all written in Hebrew, like most of uh, the Old Testament. But chapters 2 through 7 are actually written in Aramaic. 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, and they seem to mark off uh, a unique uh, section here because of that fact. And actually, if you look at the chapters, they parallel each other. So chapters 2 and 7 parallel each other, 3 and 6, and 4 and 5. And what you see in 3 and 6 is you see people being rescued. 3 is the furnace, uh, 6 is the lion's den. In 4 and 5, you see two different kings. 4 is Nebuchadnezzar, 5 is Belshazzar. And then in 2 and 7, we're going to look at this morning, 2 are these two dreams that have four different kingdoms as part of them. 2 is the kingdom that is the statue that has the four different parts, and 7 is the vision that uh, has four different beasts. So they're, they're, they're paralleled off each other. This section 2 through 7, written Aramaic, uh, is sort of a section unto itself. 
And so when we come to chapter 7, you need to remind yourselves and be aware of the fact that this is a very similar vision uh, to chapter 2. It's talking about the same kinds of things. It's paralleled to itself. And like I said, this ends the Aramaic section that started in chapter 2. So Daniel, the first time this moves to the first person here as well, Daniel now says, I, Daniel. So far, there's been this third person narrator that's speaking. And now for the first time, Daniel speaks in the first person. He says, I, Daniel, had a vision. I, Daniel, had a dream. And he's not the interpreter of dreams this time, though. He needs one to show him the meaning of his own dream, as we'll see here in a moment. And this vision that he has of sorts, it starts with these beasts coming and rising up out of the sea. These four beasts come rising up out of the ocean, as it were. The first one, verse 4, says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of the man was given to it. Now just like in chapter 2, the first uh, kingdom that's mentioned is Nebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar that's mentioned here. And this is, this is Babylon, as it were. And several times in the prophets, both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as a lion, as one who's going to come and devour God's people. Jeremiah chapter 50, 17 says this. It says, Israel is, hunted, is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at the last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Nebuchadnezzar is portrayed as this lion that devours God's people, Israel. He's also portrayed as an eagle, though. He's portrayed as an eagle in Jeremiah 48. It says, thus says the Lord, behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread over his wings against Moab. So this is Nebuchadnezzar. And if you actually think to modern day, there's a modern day symbol, even today, that has a lion that has wings on it, and it represents largely a country, even today, in the world. Iraq. It's a symbol. Saddam Hussein saw himself as in the line of Nebuchadnezzar, as one in Babylon. Chapter five, uh, Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. This is what we learned last week. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And this bear, it says, is divided. Okay, it says one is bigger than the other. And this is a divided kingdom. This is the Medians and the Persians. Okay? The second kingdom that's being mentioned. Verse 6 After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So the image here that's given, the symbol that's given here is one of a leopard, one that moves really swiftly. Now think of the next empire, the next world empire that comes after the Persian that moves swiftly and what figure, what great young figure who moves swiftly comes to your mind? Alexander the Great who dies at a young age. Historians suggest that he died before he was even 30 years old, but he moved with such vastness, such swiftness, that he's called a leper. Leopard. And it says that there are these four birds that were on his back. Well, if you know the story of the Greeks, after Alexander the Great died, the kingdom was divided among four different generals. His kingdom's divided among four different generals. Now, finally, 
Verse 7, and after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. After the Greeks, of course, comes the great Roman Empire. The great Roman Empire. Empire And these ten horns, which are highly debated among scholars, maybe it's the ten Caesars. I don't even know if there were ten Caesars. But then among these horns, among this great beast that's mentioned to us in verse 7, we read of this horn among horns in verse 8. And I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So there's this horn among the horns. Now I'll just sort of give you the two options that are available here, okay? One is that folks say this is Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, he's a leader that sort of rises at the end of the, of the Greek Empire. He's sort of before the Roman Empire. And this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, is the great, horrible persecutor of the Jews. He is the worst persecutor of the Jews that they had ever seen. See, this arrogant leader, Antiochus, that was going down to Egypt to conquer Egypt. He fails. He bout faces. He heads back up through Palestine, and he makes it to Jerusalem. And he utterly decimates the Jews. He utterly decimates them. He kills every young baby boy that is circumcised that he finds. He kills one in ten of every Jew that he finds. He goes into the temple and he takes the law of God from the temple and he rips it into shreds and he scatters it all over. He takes a pig and he puts a pig on the altar of God. He just desecrates it. And finally, he erects a statue to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Great arrogance from this man. Utterly, utterly decimates God's people. But the second option to us is that this is the Antichrist. If you turn your Bible to Revelation 13... I'm just going to read something to us for a moment. Revelation 13, verse 1 to 2. Very similar. Listen to the similarity of language. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns. Same so far. And seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. It's a little different now. And blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, this is not disputed among scholars that this is the Antichrist that's mentioned in Revelation 13. But the question is, is this the same figure that's mentioned in Daniel chapter 7? Go down to verse 5, 13.5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Sounds like Antiochus, potentially. 
blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. So, which one is it? I'm going to take the uh, ever so popular third way. What uh, Hebrew scholars have noted in the past hundred years is sort of expanding the way of understanding Hebrew prophecy. And that is to say that certainly a point is being made in Jewish history uh, that establishes, though, a pattern that will happen in Israel's life. So on the one hand, I could say, yes, I do think it is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And yet, and yet, this is setting a pattern that Israel will experience for the rest of their history. And we're going to see that at the end of the sermon when we see how Jesus himself uses these verses in Daniel chapter 7. So it is a distinct and actual moment, I think, being realized in Antiochus. And it also, though, is setting up for us a pattern that God's people, in, uh, the Jewish people, that will experience throughout the rest of their existence. And like I said, we'll see how Jesus uses this text and hopefully... I can tie that theme in for us. In a sense, you could say, as they experience Antiochus, they have warning of more turmoil to come. Okay, let's read down to verse 9 and 10. That was point one, which was called the four beasts. This is point two, that is the ancient of days. Let's read 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. This is the ancient of days. What a title to be given. This is the author and the holder of all history. This is the eternal one. This is the God of Israel who is the king of history, who is the king of all things. And in the midst of this vision, where they're given the understanding of their uh, limited and small experiences in life, they're given the grand scope of things. It's like this scroll of heaven, the story of the history of the universe is being opened before him, and they're given the big picture. They're given the big picture, Daniel's given the big picture that in the midst of all these kingdoms of beasts that are opposed to God and his rule and reign, there is a bigger picture. A bigger picture that puts God before his people. The author of history stands behind everything that Israel will experience. The ancient of days is the great and sovereign one over the timing of everything that will happen. We see here, first we realize 
that we are in a throne room, it says in verse 9. It says that thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. But when we conclude verse 10, we realize that we're in more than just a throne room. We are in a courtroom. Verse 10 says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. It means that this ancient of days, this author of history, the one that stands above time and space as we know it, will sit in judgment of the kings and the kingdoms of the earth. It means that he alone is the truly righteous one. It says that his clothing is white as snow. It means that his judgments are absolutely right, they're absolutely true, they're absolutely righteous. It says that the hair of his head was pure like wool. And this means that he is very wise. The scriptures will tell us in the Psalms and in Titus chapter 1 that he stands before time began. Nothing surprises this very wise ancient of days who stands behind all of human history. Nothing surprises him. This is a wise judge. This is a righteous judge. He is so pure that his purity and his righteousness result in his throne emanating with fire. That's how pure and righteous he is. That his throne itself brings forth and just emanates fire. The white, hot beauty of his glory emanates from him and yet does not consume the throne. It goes on to say that it has these wheels on it. It's like this chariot of sorts, which means that it's mobile. It's not constrained to one place. This ancient of days, who's righteous and wise in all his judgments, is not constrained by a place, but can go as he wills and as he pleases. And this fire that emanates from him and emanates from the wheels of his throne become a stream, it says at the beginning of verse 10. And the streams of fire will judge all the wickedness on the earth. For the book that is opened at the end of verse 10 is not the Lamb's book of life. This is the book of judgment. This is the book of the judgment of the wrath of God which will be poured out on all the evil and all the wickedness of the beasts and the kings and the kingdoms of this earth. When Isaiah had his vision in Isaiah chapter 6, And however, he made it into that glorious throne room where he had a picture of Yahweh high and lifted up. It says, above him stood the seraphim, which means burning ones. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one another, they called, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is the ancient of days, my friends. That is the ancient of days that is pure white. That is the ancient of days who is all wise. That is the ancient of days that is all righteous. And that is the ancient of days that stands behind all of human history. It is a grand juxtaposition that Daniel's experiencing after these four beasts. These four beasts, though powerful as they are, are nothing in comparison to this ancient of days that is given to us in 9 and 10. 
this fire not consuming the throne reminds us of the Exodus scene that does, the fire does not consume the bush. It shows the greatness of his power. The greatness of his power that is mobile, that means that it even condescends down to you and to me. This ancient of days is great, and he is greatly to be praised. A 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him. Everyone, all will stand before this ancient of days. And this, my friends, is written to these Hebrews who are in exile, and it is meant to give them great hope. It is meant to give them hope that the evil kingdoms that they experience and the persecution and the struggle and the trial that they experience will come to an end and is not outside the sovereign reign and rule of Yahweh their God. And that message, my friends, is absolutely applicable to us today. That is an even jump. As people who live as sojourners and exiles, that's what First Peter calls us. He says that we are sojourners, strangers, exiles, walking among this people. And this exile will come to an end. And we are where we are by the sovereign, righteous reign and rule of God. The things that concern us most about this upcoming election, that as much as they are in accord with God's righteous rule and reign, he cares infinitely more about them. The pro-choice justices that are potentially appointed, the sovereign Lord will right every single wrong. The judgment of the fire of the wrath of God will be like a stream that flows through the earth one day. And every wrong will be righted. Well, let's read on. To this son of man. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. And I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. This uh, son of man that's mentioned in verse 13, just be, it, it simply means a human one. Don't jump quite to the New Testament quite yet, because you know I'm going to go there, but just give it a sec. In its original context, it simply means one who is like a human one. You know what's interesting? Okay, that's done. Now I'm going to go to the New Testament. What's interesting is that Jesus, he never uses the name, the title Jesus Christ to refer to himself. Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus, uh, Messiah means the anointed king. 
that Jesus is the anointed king of Israel. But Jesus never uses that title to refer to himself. He's fine with other people using it about him. He accepts the title, but he never calls himself Jesus Christ. You know, he calls himself almost 40, at least 41 times in the book of Matthew alone. He calls himself the son of man. He refers to himself as the son of man. And this is exactly where he gets it. This is exactly where Jesus gets that title for himself. Daniel chapter 7 was intensely important to Jesus. It's how he saw a lot of who his own identity even was. How he wanted to communicate to the people that he interacted with. This is one who is like a man. But in verse 15, we'll come back to this in a moment. In verse 15, we see that Daniel's troubled. He says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. So he goes and he asks for interpretation. Verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Okay? So he wants to know about the beasts and he wants to know about this son of man. I think you're going to be a little bit surprised about how the this, this angelic figure initially interprets the Son of Man. Verse 17. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall ri- arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So, verse 17 says what I think we already knew, that the beasts are kings and kingdoms. But verse 18, who or what is the human one, the one like a son of man, a symbol for? It says the saints of the Most High. It says the people of God. It says the holy people of God. The point is this. This vision is first and foremost for God's people in exile. And it is a story about Daniel and his friends who are trampled on by these wicked kingdoms, but who will rise to a place of vindication as we've seen so far in their story. And they shall one day receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. This is first and foremost a word of hope to God's people, that this won't last forever, that God will vindicate his people from their exile. It's first and foremost a promise to God's holy ones. They're the ones that it says will um, receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Okay, so how does Jesus use this text? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus uses this phrase, clouds of heaven, uh, several times. He refers to verse 13 and 14 several times. But one place in particular we're going to look at to sort of bridge this gap. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. And this is where Jesus has been arrested And he's standing before the elders and the high priests and the scribes and anyone that has any significance and power is here. Okay? Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 to 64 says this. 
Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following at a distance, as far as the courtyard behind, uh, excuse me, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. So think about this scene here. This is everyone who's anyone in Israel. This is the elders. This is the high priests. This is the scribes. Okay? And what we just read is they were trying and they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They're seeking false testimony that they might put him to death. Okay? With that in mind, listen. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's all he says. He doesn't speak again for the rest of the trial. You realize what's happening here? Jesus is sitting in a room being accused by all the leaders of Israel. He's being tried on trumped up charges. And what he looks at them and he says, he says, at the moment you execute me, in that moment God will vindicate me. Jesus is saying that he is the true son of man in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And Jesus is saying something much more scary than we initially see. He's saying that the people of Israel have become a kingdom of beasts. He looks at the leaders of Israel and he says, you have become like these beasts who sought to trample the son of man. And the moment that you execute me and put me to death is the moment that God will vindicate me and I will be seen as the rightful son of man, the true Israel, the rightful king of God's people. So like I said earlier, in the mind of Jesus, Daniel 7 isn't as much pointing to a specific point, but it's pointing to a pattern in the life of God's people. Even further, what Jesus is doing here is he is saying that he is the one true Israelite. He is the rightful one to assume the kingdom. And you realize this is the entire point of the book of Matthew. You could look at the book of Matthew as Jesus of a sort, in in, in a sense, showing himself to be the true Israelite. You know what happens in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22? God says, Israel is my firstborn son, right? What happens on the opening pages of the gospel of Matthew? God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What happens in Exodus after God declares this? His people go off into the wilderness where they complain and groan. What happens after Jesus' baptism? He's taken off to the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights, but does so perfectly and righteously and passes the test. What happens after the teens in Exodus and we get to 19, 20, and 21? The law is given. The law is given to God's people, and they're told to go be a light to the nations, a light declaring the glory of God to the nations. What happens after Jesus' temptation? He goes up on the mountain himself. 
and he sits down and he gives the law. And what does he do after? He goes and he heals and he calls the nations to himself and he declares that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ is the true Israelite. And at the end of his life, at the end of his life, his own people, he came to his own and his own did not know him. His own people, Israel, had become a kingdom of beasts. And he says, I am the rightful son of man. And when you put me to death, and when you execute me, you will see the son of man coming on a cloud in all his glory. And we know three days later, God does vindicate him from the dead. And he rises from the dead, and he shows himself to be the true Israelite. And when our life is now joined to Jesus Christ, our life becomes radically different. Our life becomes radically different. You know, it says in verse 7, 9, it says that there are thrones that are placed. There are thrones that are in this judgment room, this courtroom of sorts. Doesn't that bring to your mind what the apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 2? He says, don't you know that you will even judge the angels? There's a dramatic place for us, my friends, in God's story here of redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. He brings us to himself. Though we failed, though we failed of living how we ought, Jesus Christ walked every step. He literally walked the geographical steps and rightly obeyed his father just like Israel had not. And at the end of his life, he was killed. He was murdered. He was crucified on trumped-up charges. But you remember what it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, the parallel vision here. It says that this stone will come. And this stone will crush all the other kingdoms of the earth. And it will slowly grow like a mountain. And that's how God's kingdom looks now and today. His kingdom, we are resident aliens, my friends. It means that his kingdom doesn't find itself bound in a geopolitical uh, uh, boundary. It means that the kingdoms of God are the kingdom of God is found in the kingdoms of men. And as we live this way, as we live, now that our hearts have been radically changed, our hearts have been radically changed to be radically different. It means, my friends, that we no longer have to be beasts. You know what beasts do? What do animals do? Animals live instinctively. They live instinctively. You ever thought about that? That's what animals and beasts do. They just do what comes naturally to them. And if Jesus can apply Daniel chapter 7 to even the scribes and the elders and the high priests of Israel, I think it may be appropriate, not going too far, to potentially even apply it to our own lives and hearts. And ask ourselves, in what ways do we become beasts? In what ways do we simply act instinctively? When we're wronged, do we snap back and fight back, act instinctively? How are we going to live as resident aliens, my friends? How are we going to live in such a way where we can remain faithful, not lose our religious, our Christian identity, and not separate? As I said last week, I really think it will be in the simply, in the seemingly ordinary things of life, in how we live our day-to-day lives, how the character of Christ is formed in us. And how we interact with one another. How we interact with our coworkers when we're wronged. How we interact with our neighbors when we're wronged. How we interact with our spouses when we're wronged. 
We ought not be surprised that the Bible tells us again and again and again and again to forgive. It must mean that we're going to be wronged a lot. (laughs) And we ought not be surprised when the opportunity presents itself to yet forgive again. And deny our flesh to become a beast and to act instinctively. But instead, to live the life that Jesus freely gives us. And to see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our hearts and lives. To know I am not my own, even though this other person wronged me. I know that my identity is not found in what they think about me. My identity is not found in getting my way. But my identity my life is found in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. I'm going to find my hope in that. I'm going to repent of the desire to treat this person that way. I'm going to live for him and his glory because that's what he's done for me. And we do that again and again and again. And his kingdom will spread like a, like a growing mountain as we cling to the rock that is Christ our King. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that you are the Ancient of Days. We can trust you in the grand scope of human history. And yet we can see you as Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we know that we can trust you in the small things. Give us faith to cling to you, Christ our rock. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the Lord's table today and we declare Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection until he comes again. If you're uh, visiting us from another church today and you've repented of your sins, you've been baptized, uh, you are welcome to partake with us. So come up row by row and take the elements back to your seat and we will take uh, the Lord's Supper corporately as a church family together.